Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast with me, Dr. Samantha Cotrera. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share my academic conference presentations with a wider audience. I also have a video series called Imagining a New We that's designed for K-12 teachers and helping them think about their practice and pedagogy in more meaningful, inclusive, and transformative ways. Just after the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic, I recorded a video for that series asking how we would teach history after this. I didn't have any answers. I still don't. But in asking the question, I was able to connect to a wide variety of people in the history and heritage field about whether their ideas of history have changed because of this moment, how they think teaching history will shift after this moment, and how notions of community, collaboration, and creativity, the imagining a new we that I named the video series after, may be developed or curtailed during and after this time. All of these videos are available on YouTube. You can search for my name to find the channel, but the conversations have been so rich that I wanted to provide another way for people to access them. This podcast episode and the rest in the Pandemic Pedagogy series is an unedited audio version of one of those video conversations. As an unedited version, you may hear buffering or a prompt to re-ask a question or even the inclusion of a cat, but the content and quality of the conversation remains the same. In this conversation, originally posted May the 5th, 2020, I speak to Dr. Jeffrey Ryum. Dr. Ryum is a critical disability historian at York University. He identifies that this moment is a period of disablement for many of us, and that learning about the history of disability can historicize many of the feelings and experiences we're going through during the pandemic. Enjoy. Hi, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Hi. I am uh, I'm so excited for you to be able to bring your perspectives of being a historian in the field of critical disability studies to this conversation. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I look forward to participating. I'm glad you're running this series as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's been really great the people's responses, and uh, I can um, I can imagine that this conversation will be no less amazing. So um, let's start with our first question, and um, in the first question, maybe we can kind of segue into an introduction about critical disability studies and what it's like to be a historian in this field. So the first question I ask people is if they think about history any differently because of this moment, because I have, um, not everyone has kind of shifted and changed, but I, I think that there's so much room here to think about so many things about history differently. Have you thought about history any differently in this, this moment? And how does, your, how does your perspective of being a historian in the field of critical disability studies shape that? Well, yes, I have um, in some ways, uh, because it's been such an astonishing um, few weeks, hasn't it? It's been quite astonishing. March was, I I don't think I have ever seen a month with such colossal changes all over the world so quickly and so catastrophically. I mean, millions of people lost their jobs in the matter of a few weeks. It's just in Canada and all over the world. And um, so many people... Uh, having to be quarantined on a scale we've never seen before in mm. the entire world. So um, it's it's stunning to see to le- realize we're living at a time of of what happened to what has happened has been the greatest quarantine in world history mm-hmm. um, of the largest number of people 
more extensively anywhere else in the world. I mean, just India alone, it's, you're talking over one billion people. Um, yeah. It's just extraordinary. And, then, and, and the irony, I was teaching a course on the history of healthcare ethics um, uh, this past term, and I was talking about the history of plagues in medieval Europe and ended up at the end of the semester talking about xenophobia and um, attitudes towards um, people who are scapegoated as the other mm -hmm. um, when contagious diseases are, are um, believed to have an outbreak in the particular areas. And, and of course, this is now going on right now. And so yeah. I'm relating this history directly to what I'm talking about. And I'm reminding the students of saying, you'll be telling your grandchildren about these in, in decades to come. And uh, we're now living at a time uh, that uh, long after all of us are gone, people will be saying 2020 was, I mean, usually you can't say that. You don't, you don't have enough historical perspective to say such and such a time was an epochal yeah. um, period. But I think we can say 2020, <laughs> we could say yeah. that in the past month, uh, has now become a, a hugely important um, period in history. And we're living it right now and we don't know what the future will be. So I think... Um, to answer your question, do we think about history differently? Um, I think I, I think about it more in the context of vulnerabilities mm. and the vulnerabilities of of uh, people um, experiencing vulnerability on such a massive scale um, that disabled people experience uh, on a micro scale all the time in their own individual lives, um, and now it's been experienced by billions all over the world about vulnerability of, well, will I get a virus? Uh, what will happen to me and my family or loved ones now that I don't have a job? Or if I do have a job, how long will it last? And um, people who've lost jobs, how will I make a living in the future? Um, and so the economic vulnerability, the emotional vulnerability, uh, the vulnerability of, of, of what services are available. I mean. Um, of course, we all know the huge crisis over ventilators for people with um, COVID-19. But of course, there are many other um, emergencies going on all the time. And the rationing of services of, of, uh, for um, vulnerable populations is a major issue during COVID-19. And so lots of disabled people are feeling very um, well, vulnerable and threatened by a lot of things about possibly being considered not as worthwhile to um, to keep alive in, in, in if one gets COVID-19. Of course, there have been a lot of pushback against that as well and changes in government policy since uh, the, the virus has uh, um, burst onto the scene But here in Canada. But the point is, is that a large numbers of people are, um, are feeling... Um, uh, extremely worried about what's going to happen to them and, and no control over it, where I think many people felt a certain deep degree of control um, or at least not as vulnerable to, to potentially dying of a virus or, or a total um, loss of their economic um, stability that, that they have now are experiencing right now, whereas disabled people experience it all the time. Disabled mm. people um, are, are um, very often amongst the poorest in society are, are, have underlying conditions that make them more um, susceptible to such conditions as COVID-19 um, and uh, are, of course, in, in often in, 
in healthcare institutions um, uh, in which uh, many people have been dying, long-term care homes, nursing homes, as we've seen so many people are, have died in there who are also, of course, people with acquired or congenital disabilities. So all of this, I think, makes you realize history is not just the past, it's what's going on right now. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of people are experiencing what disabled people have experienced on an individual level in their own, in, in their own communities um, <clears throat> throughout uh, modern history uh, is now being experienced by a lot of people who don't consider themselves disabled. Um, so it's, it's in some ways, it's, it's in a mass experience of disablement. <laughs> um, a lot of people take, of taking for granted things that uh, you can walk down the street, for example. And of course, not all disabled people can walk um, and, or, or get out, basically. It's some people can, uh, most people think, most of us took for granted just going to the park or going out for, to the cafe or, or what have you. Um, and of course, that's no longer so possible anymore with the social distancing. Many disabled people, um, even if they could get out, often couldn't get into the cafe because it's not accessible. So a lot of things that, uh, that uh, aren't accessible to the vast majority of people now, uh, in many cases, haven't been accessible to disabled people uh, in the past and in, in, in the present as well. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's the fact and of course, the fact that a lot of services that aren't accessible to people right now either um, is a major issue that, that where people would take for granted um, things that in their daily life is not, you can't take it for granted so much being shut up in one's house, locked or confined in, in small spaces. Um, many disabled people have been confined in small spaces historically and, uh, and in, in other respects as well and having a great deal of economic vulnerability of having not only lost jobs, but not getting jobs at all. Um, and uh, so the unemployment rate amongst disabled people is historically much higher than amongst able-bodied people. But now so many more people, able-bodied and disabled, are, are without work and threatened by um, a virus that we don't know um, how to control um, in terms of uh, a vaccine, at least. Uh, we're trying to control it with, with social distancing. But in, in other words, there's a mass vulnerability that lots of disabled people experience all the time. And I think that's something that, as a historian, I think um, that's worth reflecting upon. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting, and I, I and and I think really powerful. And maybe this moment is a way, or maybe we can help understand history in this moment by being challenged by the work of, of critical, uh, critical disability studies uh, scholars, historians, as a way to understand the historicity of isolation and access and vulnerability that um, disabled people have always faced as a way to understand how we can challenge this notion of, of what it what it means to be disabled in society in a way that can bring uh, um, bring greater understanding to what it's like with these kind with these societal and economic vulnerabilities. Yes, very much so, and and that uh, the the fact that so many people are also being scapegoated as the other, so yeah. to speak. Yes, of course we know that the xenophobia that has that has happened, particularly towards people of East Asian descent and uh, people who are Chinese, but uh, particularly, 
um, and the racism that has, has occurred um, and being scapegoated and uh, or, or being uh, people being seen as a burden in other contexts. Disabled mm. people have been historically been categorized as a burden. Um, and we've seen great concerns from the disability community generally uh, about being seen as a um, potentially not as worth having um, life-saving um, supports in a medical emergency if they have COVID-19. Will they get a respirator or will a disabled person get a respirator or not, depending on the, um, the nature of their disability and the healthcare worker's attitude towards that yeah. person with a disability. Um, there's been pushback. A lot of disabled activists uh, and allies have, have um, critiqued a lot of these ideas. There was an ideas around <clears throat> um, deciding who could or couldn't get um, uh, certain kinds of, of healthcare treatment if they had COVID-19. And a lot of activists uh, critiqued this and wrote to the federal and provincial governments and federal and provincial governments in, uh, around <clears throat> early to mid-April um, responded, uh, of course, that they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't not prioritize, prioritize disabled people. So they the government, at least here in Canada, some of the governments have come out and said that they will make sure disabled people aren't left by the wayside. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's an important um, change in that sense uh, from some of the previous draft policies that were being circulated. At the same time, it's one thing to have something on paper. It's another thing when it's an emergency in a, in a crisis situation. And, um, and so it's important that the the healthcare workers who are who are working with disabled people, of course, um, have the um, attitude that disabled people are as worth living as anybody else. And of course, there are many healthcare workers who would support that. There's no question about mm -hmm. that. Uh, many healthcare workers, um, of course, uh, have loved ones who are disabled and work with disabled people all the time. But then there's always the danger that there would be some who who wouldn't have that attitude and may have the old stereotypes and prejudices so there's there's the there's just the fear and of course there's a wider societal perception of disabled people being a burden so mm -hmm. no matter who you are and that's a concern as well so there there's all of these concerns about um about how disabled people will uh, um be treated or not treated as the case may be in the case of COVID-19 if they if they uh, contract it and um so it's it's certainly an ongoing concern that um, a lot of disabled people have expressed in the last month or so. Well, this notion too of xenophobia, like I think, and this is something that's come up in a lot of the videos that this moment has really like unearthed these structures that work or don't work. Most of the time they don't work. And this notion of xenophobia, I think also, you know, it's identifying who we understand to be people in our country to be a people in our nation as kind of worthy for treatment right because that to me um really highlights the fact that uh people can be like well if i don't have a disabled person in my family like those people those people can get sick whereas i want to protect my own and this notion of my own and others can be so much more broad because this moment is like unearthing uh, these structures that we we wouldn't have articulated that before, but now we are. And I think what I'm hearing from you is the importance. Well, I mean, what I'm I'm gathering because I know that of your work in historian, the importance of using history to be able to challenge that, but also to rally with activists to to force change um, in those those ideas, even if we haven't articulated them.
Yes, that's right. So the um, the whole issue of scapegoating the other, it's, it's mm-hmm. I mean, you can go back to the Middle Ages, Jews were uh, blamed, uh, quote unquote, blamed for um, uh, causing uh, the Black Death in 1348 to 51 uh, in medieval Europe during the Black Death of Bubonic Plague, which killed a third to one third to a half of the population of Western Europe um, at that time and where some Jews were burned at the stake. Um, and so we know this, this prejudice, bigoted attitude goes back a long time and it's literally cost people their lives who have been othered. Um, and of course we know about the anti-Asian immigrant attitude that has a long history as well. It's, it's certainly well before this period, there were different examples of, um, of contagious disease outbreaks in, mm. in different parts of North America and for example, um, in Calgary in 1892, uh, and um, in um, Chinatown in San Francisco as well in the late 19th century, where uh, Chinese people were scapegoated and um, in some cases even attacked. Um, and um, the, So the, these racist prejudices come up again and again. Um, and of course, disabled people are um, very much been uh, part of that being scapegoated uh, based very much on the eugenic ideas that disabled people don't aren't as productive quote unquote mm-hmm. as other people so whole idea of notions of who is productive and who isn't who is as worthwhile a citizen and who isn't um is uh, is something that factors into all of these uh, all of these prejudices and of course um are often based on completely inaccurate ideas as well. Disabled people can be as productive as anyone else, but also what notions of productivity, we have to be careful. Even someone who is, who is not considered productive in the typical um, economic sense mm-hmm. under a capitalist system has as every bit as worthwhile a contribution and place in society as someone who doesn't. You don't have to be someone who writes articles or sits in an office or who works in a factory to be a worthwhile person. And obviously, it's it, it's very important to emphasize that we should not have um, economic factors as the ultimate litmus test of whether somebody belongs in society and is, is worthwhile contributors to society, um, because that would endanger large numbers of people um, with disabilities who um, are not um, participating in um, economic um, productivity um, factors that uh, that. Um, are often used to determine whether somebody is a burden or not. And also the very fact that so many people with disabilities um, also need um, um, support services in different ways and require supports in different ways has often been used as well. They'll be a burden on the healthcare system and and so forth, which is is also another way of denigrating the um, the lived experience and the worth of disabled people in, in society. Um, we've seen that uh, over uh, uh, issues around who gets transplants, for example, mm-hmm. past or outside of COVID-19. So um, it's, there's been all of, a lot of these sorts of prejudiced attitudes that are generally uh, there in, in, in wider, wider society that in times of emergency, as we've had now, um, and uncertainty, because we're right now, in, we're now in April, uh, April 21st, and we have no idea what's going to happen for sure. Is the COVID-19 pandemic going to end in a a few months, or is it just going to appear to go away for a while and then come back again? I mean, they're talking about years of uncertainty 
um, in a way that we haven't experienced in any of our lifetimes, certainly in, in, in North America. Um, and so it's a, a, a very new experience for large numbers of the population um, and for disabled people to experience that sort of uncertainty um, and vulnerability is, as I mentioned earlier, a very common experience. So, um, so we need to understand that uh, the last thing we should be doing is deciding that only those who are um, more cap deemed more capable, quote unquote, of um, contributing to uh, opening up the economy as they keep talking about now, some of the politicians amongst others um, are therefore more worthy of uh, being a part of, uh, of, of society and therefore we should prioritize who gets this, the treat, certain treatments if somebody gets COVID-19. Um, and that's a, a, a very major concern as well. I mean, look at, look at the, the lack of policy uh, that, that led to so many deaths in nursing homes, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and people um, dying in such large numbers in, in, in settings where there are large numbers of people with uh, um, underlying health conditions. And um, it's, it's, a, it's certainly a, a very great concern. And of course, a lot of disabled people are losing um, supports, supports that they were able to get because of social distancing, for example, physiotherapists. Right, right. Um, go into a lot of people's homes and for whom a lot of people have funding or financial support to, um, to, to enable them to come to an individual's home um, are no longer available because of the, the um, social distancing. That's just one of many areas. So a lot of people who need those sorts of supports don't, don't get them. Um, and so what's going to happen in the long term as well um, for people who, who do live out in the community, as well as for people who live in, in, in um, institutional settings who are more vulnerable to, uh, to having um, a contagious disease spread because they live in a, in a nursing home, for example. Um, and, and the supports that need to be given to healthcare workers, personal support workers, um, are, are often left out of this discussion as well. And I've seen that in a few articles as well, where people are concerned that um, personal support workers who work directly with disabled people are not con, um, considered as vitally important as, say, somebody who works in a hospital. And, um, and that's uh, very important, where both should be valued equally and for a variety of reasons. So, um, so all of these things come up that, uh, that again, uh, um, underline the vulnerability disabled people have experienced uh, throughout, uh, throughout um, modern history, generally speaking, uh, either by being placed in, in settings of, not of their choice uh, in, in institutions or simply not being seen as uh, worthwhile contributors of society and, and economically and socially marginalized. Um, and, um, and so that's a concern as well about how this will all play out in that regard. Well, I think about what you're saying too about uncertainty because even when this is over, whatever that looks like, it won't be over for so many people because, because this moment will stay with us. And, um, uh, and if, for example, someone couldn't get physiotherapy during this time, they, they might not be able to interact in society the way that they would have with consistent care, but also things like anxieties and mental health issues that are going to 
going to be a result or be exacerbated by things like the vulnerability, the uncertainty, the, the lack of access, the, uh, the, the social isolation. Um, and so to me, I think about uh, I think about students and I think about classrooms and I think about how this will impact how and in what ways that we will teach history after this moment. Do you think the way we will teach history will change after this moment? Do you think that the, the notion of vulnerability that we are all feeling right now to, to various degrees, um, definitely not equally, um, do you think this notion of vulnerability will shift the way that we teach history? Do you think it should? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a good question. I mean, I, I don't have a, a, a definite answer. I mean, of course, obviously, in one practical sense, it's changing for everybody teaching um, by being on, on remote distance teaching. Mm -hmm. But in terms of how we conceptualize what we're teaching is, is very important. And the whole issue of people's experiencing of um, mental health um, stress and anxiety hugely important that people are experiencing right now uh, mm -hmm. and will be experiencing um, long into the future and it will only uh, increase as uh, as the uncertainty increases so um, the supports that we have for our um, students and uh, as well as uh, faculty and staff who are engaged in all of this uh, effort to teach differently is, is um, something that we have to think about and and try to uh, um, do as equitably as possible. I think part of it is that uh, we're going to have to um, understand if, if we're going to be doing more remote teaching as a result of, of this pandemic, um, we need to uh, basically uh, make far greater accommodations for our students and, by the way, for faculty as well, in the way we teach this. Um, it can't be just the standard um, teaching process that, at York University, for example, we have a standard three-hour class. I know it's different at different universities. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, they, they won't be able to, uh, to do that. They have childcare, for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> people have, or elder care, taking care of loved ones, or taking care of oneself. When do, uh, people, um, whether they have COVID-19 or, or, or any other health condition, if you're at home, you're going to... It's not as easy to, to separate the classroom from home now is it because no. we're it's right there <laughs> and um and so how we teach it is i think a way of of trying to bring history into the home um mm. and uh, talking about how um we think about um the fact that this remote teaching is being done to a greater extent than ever before for obvious reasons because of the emergency and emergency pandemic but um, what happened in the past, in the, um, in the uh, uh, flu pandemic, 1918 to 1920, um, which was a worldwide catastrophe, as we all know, um, they didn't have remote teaching, obviously. Um, schools were, no, their internet access was so poor then. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, I don't know. Can't, can't understand why. <laughs> they, didn't have, they didn't have what we have, obviously. Um, and... Uh, and so the schools just shut closed mm -hmm. and um, people could potentially have done something at home if they had the resources, but you could certainly have seen how in, in the flu pandemic of a hundred years ago, people 
would have lost uh, all that period of education that the children would have lost because their parents were busy. busy uh, if they did have work, if they were able to go to work, of course, um, trying to survive or just didn't have the skills to teach a child, children, or were too busy with, you know, seven or eight or ten children because their families generally tended to be bigger than, um, than now, at least in the Western world. So, I mean, so we have to remember that um, that when we think of, of of what we're trying to do as teachers, now we have, can try to think of how people cope with past pandemics in, in the family unit um, or in extended families or in communities um, and how people try to, to support each other. There was form of social distancing in the past. Uh, you could read uh, how in past uh, uh, pandemics or epidemics in medieval Europe, for example, uh, physicians uh, would uh, give healthcare advice by shouting up to somebody in the house uh, or in a dwelling, if it was in a building where a large number of people lived, or they wouldn't, they, if the physician wouldn't necessarily go in. The, the um, whole history of, of healthcare in, in pandemics is in itself, in, in, in the past, is a fascinating topic in of itself because doctors were often, up until the medieval period, it was often seen as ethically appropriate for doctors to flee mm-hmm. because so many people were going to die. It's better for a doctor to preserve their life and get out of town so they could get out of the, the, the area where people were dying of the plague. Um, and preserve themselves for the survivors afterwards. And eventually, of course, that changed, and that's not an issue anymore. Obviously, healthcare workers are, are um, um, universally understand that they need to, to stay where the, where the emergency is. And of course, so many have given their lives as a direct result, um, right, right in this current pandemic. But in the past, uh, there were social distancing techniques as well. Literally, people would be shouting up. <laughs> to buildings and to doctors in the past, or, or of course, quarantine uh, methods were done as well, which were quite often quite brutal. Um, so it's it's um, when we think of it, uh, pa- past and present, we can think of how past societies tried to to address these issues. Even the um, um, quarantine suits that the um, the gowns, the complete coverings people uh, healthcare workers are wearing to cover themselves. Um, um, to protect themselves from either getting the disease or spreading it. Um, that developed in the period of the um, Middle Ages of the uh, of pandemics that were spread periodically from the mid-14th to the mid-17th um, centuries due to, due, to, due to plagues, the first quarantine outfits. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, all of these are, are some people, and as it turned out, the quarantine outfits that were developed um, in uh, medieval Europe during this period weren't particularly effective, but that's not the fault of the people who tried to do it. They were tr- generally trying to find out how to stay in a community as healthcare workers and help people uh, while not spreading the z- disease or get it. Um, and so people were, were so to speak, um, priming in the dark. They were, they were trying to figure out something that was very hard to figure out when you're in the midst of it, and that's what's happening right, right. now. People are trying to figure out how to teach <laughs> online. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not quite as um, a direct emergency as a doctor going into a house of people with a contagious disease. But nevertheless, it is a long-term concern that everybody has. People 
need to continue their education. People need to continue their jobs um, or find work. And so, uh, so how do we deal with all of these things um, in this new area of, of how to teach history is something that concerns uh, many of us. And so I think a lot of it, when I, how we teach history is going to make us teach history differently. Um, I, I think so. I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm, I'm finding my way in the dark, to be honest. I, I really... I really don't know. Part of it might be also I'm not very good technically. <laughs> I'm not exa um, uh, exactly a, a very good technician. I, I know how to turn it on and off the computer and I can do PowerPoints and things like that. And But of course, it's a learning curve and you, you learn. So you learn and you figure out, okay, we've got to do it. So you got to do it. You got to figure it out. Um, so especially those of us who are lucky enough to have a job, we better try to figure it out to try to do our job better. And so that's that's part of the expectation as well, but it is still, um, it's still figuring out things as we go along. And so I think it's a, a, a learning curve as we go, uh, how to teach more effectively and how to engage students. Um, I only had a few classes at the end of term that I had to teach online, in, um, one of which was the, um, the History of Healthcare Ethics course. Um, but, um, I'm, I'm not too sure it was particularly effective, to be honest. And so I'm, I'm thinking about how to engage students better online. It was, I, I find teaching in person, it's my own personal preference, much more effective engaging people. Um, but uh, we don't have that now for obvious reasons that we all know about. And we have to figure out how to, to change and to adapt and to try to make this work in a better way for everyone. And so that's something, um, so that's something I think... Uh, we all need to figure out, including myself. So I'm, I don't have an answer. Basically, my answer is I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out as we go on. And I'll continue to, and uh, as, as so many others are, and I'm reading stuff online about more pedagogically better ways of teaching online as well as we do this. So it's a, it's a question mark for me right now. I mean, I think, I, think that's, I think it's so valid. I think it's a question mark for so many of us. And because it happens so quickly and so many of us mm -hmm. care so much for our students that we, like, I think there was just this expectation in, in all of our individual heads that we needed to make it perfect right away and, mm -hmm. um, and like seamless. And of course, that, 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 that was never going to be the case. Um, no. and, for me, I think about what you are saying, what you said earlier about vulnerability, like we could start by teaching history from this place of vulnerability to say, what's going on? Let's figure out, let's figure out how this is the same and different from moments in the past and how they dealt with it to learn about like quarantine suits, you know, um, and how they worked or how they didn't work. Um, I think starting from a place of vulnerability can make us all better educators, but I think also is more honest to the moment because, mm -hmm. yeah, whether or not we know the technology or not, um, I, I think we all can agree that teaching is about this relationship between teacher and student in a in a way that um, brings out the best in in what a student could learn from the information that the professor has and feels is important to share at that moment. Yes, that's right. I think, and that's a very important point about the, our own vulnerabilities as teachers and um, the students' vulnerabilities um, who are undergoing so much stress in their daily lives. Um, yeah. Many of our, our students have lost their jobs. And they're going through family crises in their own family. Their, their, our parents may have lost jobs. 
often stress in their own personal lives and their brother, siblings uh, and so on. Um, they, and of course, uh, people have lost loved ones who've died mm -hmm. um, and, uh, or who are sick and so naturally are worried. So all of this is happening right now. So the huge emotional and economic vulnerabilities for everybody is uh, something we all need to take into account. And the fact that we're zooming into people's houses too, yeah. um, something too. I mean, uh, uh, I've, um, you know, I think that's, we have to make a, a, a lot more um, um, uh, accommodation. Uh, basically accommodations are, are something we deal with all the time in, in our field of whether you are teaching in disability studies or not disabled uh, uh, people with disability, disabled students are in courses of any kind all over the place. Um, and um, the issues of accommodations for disabled people comes up all the time. Um, as a very um, important part of their rights as students. And, and now when we consider it that large numbers of other people who may not consider themselves disabled also are requiring accommodations of various kinds because of the crisis everybody's going through um, and the stresses that they're going through. And I know that's certainly been the case with some of my students as well. And as well as faculty members, the people who are teaching this, as well as some of the staff who are we're helping to monitor these um, technical arrangements as well. It's very stressful for staff who are engaged in yeah. this as well. Um, and, uh, and being online a lot, glaring into a computer can be itself stressful. Yeah. Um, and, and so we have to uh, take account of that as well. Um, and interacting a lot on, on platforms where we haven't previously been, most of us haven't previously been so used to. So. Um, so all of these are, are things we all need to take into account as we deal with COVID-19 and, and the fact that um, um, people also feel vulnerable uh, as students uh, when will I complete my degree? How will my, how will, will my degree be considered as, as worthwhile um, by having been taught uh, so much online, if that happens, uh, compared to being in the classroom and so I mean, hope it will be, but we don't know. I mean, these all these sort of things play out um, about uh, how we conceive of our, our new responsibilities as, as teachers and uh, towards uh, our, our students and towards other faculty members and staff as we, um, we deal with this completely new world of, of, uh, of teaching and remote uh, um, learning and social distancing at a time when we have no idea what, how long this will last or if there will be waves, they're talking about waves happening. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we go back to teach in the fall and then all of a sudden in the middle of term, this happens again. Um, it's uh, that, that uncertainty that I think everybody is finding uh, is very anxiety producing and causing a lot of, of, of distress for people um, in, in all kinds of ways. And, so, um, so I think that uh, I think as a historian looking back at the um, histories of disabled people and the experiences of, of, of mad people in particular, where I teach a lot of courses on um, and to say the history of disability, people with disabilities and, and mad people's history, as well as history of healthcare ethics. Um, these, the, all of these uh, anxieties that people are experiencing now on a, on a mass scale is is something that I think um, we need to place in the, the context of how many people have endured this in their um, individual lives um, in, in these different histories 
um, that are ongoing right now and that uh, we're all living out in our, our daily lives in various various ways um, and how we can try to um, support people who are experiencing this um, is, is very important. And again, it's a lot of it is, is, is just finding our way. Um, there, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a clear plan A or plan B. There's, mm -hmm. there's probably about a, every a plan A to Z and, and other letters in between or other configurations in between. We, we, we don't have just one way of doing it. Um, but, uh, so it's, it's something we're all trying to figure out as we go through this monumental change in everyone's life right now. Well, and well, I think about what you said earlier about, um, about how this moment is highlighting things that disabled people have faced for so long, things like access, isolation, and vulnerability, because those things we can start our teaching from that moment to ensure that our students are able to access materials in a, in a different in different ways and so not just mm -hmm. but like I, I teach a small class right now and I even though all the students attend they still record it so that they can watch it later and mm -hmm. um, do email summaries so that they can access it differently that we still run a class so that they don't feel isolated even when or especially when they don't feel like they're going to be successful in the course anymore, but just to stay connected and to start from that place for from for vulnerability to start. We do a check in every class just to be like, how you feeling? I know this is weird, you know, because um, I, I think mm. those things how you how you started by talking about the elements we can take from critical disability histories can really help our teaching. So. Uh, so I just melded them together, but like, thank you for that because I don't think we all have answers and using some of these histories to guide us can, can really help. I yeah. think. Yes. I think that's, that's very true around uh, issues of, of feeling like you're a full citizen, for example. Right. Lots of disabled people have not been made to feel a full citizen as well. There's a book by a disability studies scholar at the University of Victoria, um, Michael Prince called Absent Citizens, and he talks about how disabled people have, have been um, excluded from citizenship very so very often, and in, in he's specifically referring to Canadian context. But it's it's very true. I mean, um, part of it is is uh, I, I think what you're pointing out is is feeling um, whether you feel you're going to be um, as you say. Uh, feeling part of the course basically is right. or, or part part of you really feel as much part of the course if you're just online and, and not in the classroom um, or how to what extent can you some people may feel a better able to engage online on the other hand too other that's people right, may feel right. less like some people may feel more comfortable engaging in the classroom than online so um, so it's uh, all of these things are are um, are, are different, felt differently in different contexts. Also, the um, so uh, the whole issue of, as I say, access to resources is all that's part of feeling whether you're a full participating citizen in 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 the community or full participating member of a class, in a micro sense of being a citizen of that class, if you will. Um, and also, but I think it's not just the class. I think it's access to when I talk about access to resources that disabled people have historically. Um, had 
a deal of barriers to uh, to uh, maintaining and or uh, obtaining at all um, and can, that's something that's ongoing it's also now uh, people having lack of access to libraries there's right. a lot of of, um, of resources online but um, I always as a historian I always say to students don't just sit at home and you know <laughs> go, go online there's so much in, in libraries that are, are not online um, and that's very important and of course of course, archives, needless to say, that it will never be online. There are, are more archival collections online, but there will be the most, most archival collections can never be online for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which it's impossible to put all those documents online, and there are privacy issues as well, of course. Um, but the point is, is that there's now among students, especially for graduate students trying to complete their MA or PhDs, but also for undergrads just trying to do their regular coursework, a lack of access to the library. Mm -hmm. where there are resources they can't get online. Or for graduate students, especially someone who's doing research in the field, you can't do field research now for reasons we all know. Um, and so that, that's a, a whole issue that, um, that raises sorts of things that disabled people also experience all the time. I'm, I'm always aware that when I talk to students about using the library, of course, there are some students with disabilities who are not able to get access to all the shelves in the library because of their physical disabilities and so um, um, of course uh, ask for assistance and, and they, there are um, um, mechanisms in place to help people um, get uh, get books from the library where a person can't reach them themselves but nevertheless the point is is that it's it's a sort of taken for granted idea that oh we always have the library there if we need it Nope, it's not there now. Um, and so again, there, there, are, there are some people who have disabilities who will tell you that that's something they, they know about all too well in their life, right, right. about not getting access to those sorts of uh, resources. So many of us, speaking as an able-bodied person, because I'm physically able-bodied, I've always had a physical access to a library whenever I wanted. So like everybody else, that's no longer possible. And, um, and so uh, this is a, a, um, a, an experience that is particularly urgent for students, as well as, of course, faculty engaging in research that uh, a lot of us uh, and uh, students in particular trying to complete their degrees uh, don't have. So we have to make, understand these, make these accommodations and understand, uh, well, at the very basic, it's going to take longer. And uh, what does that mean, not only for a student's de degree, but their finances? Many students are, are obviously concerned, well, what financially can I do this? Over longer term, I only plan to go X number of months or X period uh, to do this, but now I, I, I to do this work, but now I can't do it because the libraries are closed, or I can't get access to the archives, or I, my field research is postponed because we don't know if we can go do field research for because of the uh, social distancing um, and quarantine policies. So, uh, so many of our students and uh, faculty members uh, will be uh, in a bind such that we don't know the answer to right now mm -hmm. isn't it and so um and so that comes up brings all sorts of issues about disabled people engaging in research um who often have uh, these barriers that they experience in their day-to-day -day lives that uh, are now being experienced by large numbers of people as never before um and so that, again that brings back um disablement is being experienced in different contexts uh, in different ways, but uh, there's large-scale disablement, I think, as, as never before. It's not equal, and I'm not saying it's the same for everyone. It is not. 
uh, for all sorts of reasons around class, race, gender, um, and um, ability. Uh, but um, but nevertheless, there is a huge amount of uh, of of, uh, of vulnerability. I keep coming back to that word that people yeah. have, haven't experienced. I mean, I would come back to that word too. And this notion of disablement, yes, it's it's in no way equal, but it can be this opening to be able to help us think about things differently, about history differently, mm -hmm. differently, but also uh, also our society differently. So this leads to the last question, just a, a quick plug. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about a lot of these things um, already, but the the idea of this, this video series is called Imagining a New We, because I found in history classes, specifically K-12 history classes, there can be this like uh, a way to, to, to underlie this us versus them mentality and so the idea of the video blog generally was to to challenge that how can we challenge this notion of us versus them how can we think more creatively and collaboratively about a we together um, and so as a way to end uh, can you comment at all do you think the ways that we can or should imagine a different more inclusive less othered we will shift and change after this moment? Yeah, I, well, I would hope that uh, at the most basic level, more people will understand the need for accommodations. That's been a challenge for many disabled students and faculty and staff who've requested accommodation and um, somewhere along the chain of command, so to speak, whether it be a professor, who is responding to a student or an administrator who is respond, uh, a higher level administrator who is responding to a faculty member or staff uh, is, is not as sympathetic. Um, in many cases they are. I'm not saying that's the case always. Of course, it's not always the case. There, there are many people who are supportive, but there are many cases where um, you will hear of where there's the attitudinal barrier is still there. Um, yeah. That impacts people in other ways as well, of course. Um, that oh no, um, they they should just uh, uh, take the uh, do the course. That, uh, on their, they, they, if we give them accommodation, they will have special privileges, quote unquote, compared to somebody else um, who doesn't have the uh, the accommodation. And of course, it that often completely ignores the fact that some people, for example, require more time to get their work done um, for very legitimate reasons related to their disabilities. Uh, physical disabilities, um, uh, uh, mental health disabilities, um, and uh, cognitive disabilities as well, um, and uh, or sensory disabilities, um, as well as the fact that uh, people, of course, have all sorts of uh, of things going on in their lives that require that re require extra time. Um, that uh, is very important. Uh, Childcare being one, obviously, uh, work schedules. So um, I, I I would. Our elder care as well is, is um, very important. So I, all of this brings back to the point, I think that I would hope that there would be more understanding of accommodation mm -hmm. for large numbers of people. And, and that includes, by the way, people who can't um, uh, do distance learning. Not everybody can do distance learning. Um, it comes up where um, um, I'm sure we've seen, many of us have seen online and have heard about how um, the, a lot of the distance learning, for example, of children um, um, uh, is not always possible 
because uh, some families don't have the computer technology because they didn't have the money. And so what happens then? And some school boards have been providing um, some com um, computer technology or other resources, but, um, but there's, not everybody's able to access it equally. It's basically what comes, comes up across. And not everybody finds, uh, even when they do online learning, it's as effective. Some people are more, prefer a paper learning for a variety of reasons, uh, learning with hard copies, literally in front of them, um, rather than learning online. So it's, uh, I, I, so the, the, all the different ways of accommodating people, I think is something I think, um, I hope more people will um, take into account who previously may not have been as open to it, um, because there is still, uh, there are still people who will uh, say that it's, it, um, gives an unfair advantage to some people over others when in fact that's that's not the case. There are people who are um, systemically disadvantaged um, by their um, um, socioeconomic position due to their race, uh, and their class and their and their ability um, or gender as a direct result of uh, of not having access to certain resources that others others do. And I think that needs to be taken account. And so basically I'm saying lots of, of, of the issue around accommodation comes up uh, all the time in, in the field I work in. And I'm hoping that um, more people more broadly will consider it as, a, as, a, as uh, something that is, is something that needs to be facilitated um, more um, understandably than has been historically done. And because a lot of disabled people have had troubles getting accommodation. Um, at different times from from either their their employees or from their um, teachers and that's I think well, now everybody needs accommodations of some kind yeah. and again it's not equal I know that but it, it, everything has changed so much that it's um, it's making the whole issue of accommodations uh, a pressing matter for lots of people who previously hadn't probably considered it well, too, like even even the word accommodation insinuates there is a, a normal standard that everyone should be yeah. up to, right? That you are now being exactly. accommodated, something's being accommodated. And I think that this can help us push what we consider normal um, in a way mm -hmm. to be more inclusive about what that might look like for all of us moving forward. Um, you brought up so many really, really interesting elements to this conversation. I want to thank you so much. This has been really, really awesome. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, will you be able to share with us some links and things like that if people wanted to uh, engage in some activism and be an ally or be an activist in this field um, to, to help support that? Yes, yeah, sure. I'll, uh, I'll forward some to you in, in, very shortly and let okay, you know great. where what people where people can look, particularly around uh, COVID-19, but also more generally, too. So that would be very good. I'd be glad to do that. And, and thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Oh, it's been so amazing. And by the time everyone is watching this, those links will be below the video so you can check those out. Um, okay. And yeah, thank you again. I, um, uh, like I said, I really think that it, uh, helps develop this conversation out and um, thank you for bringing your perspectives and your experience and your expertise to this conversation. You're welcome. Thanks again for asking me. All the best. All right. Have a great day.
You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Pandemic Pedagogy series of the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Gutrera podcast. My first book, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We, will be available in the latter half of 2020. Order on Amazon or through your local bookseller today.